Hello and welcome to In Good Company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Otega Uwagba. If you're new to the show, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women, and also the author of Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women, which you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly and you can listen to them on NTS or download them via iTunes. So if you're not already, subscribe now to make sure you get the next one straight to your phone. On today's show, I'm talking to writer, blogger and podcaster Emma Gannon, who's also a regular on the speaker circuit and was included alongside yours truly on this year's Forbes 30 Under 30 list in the media and marketing category. Emma has built a thriving career essentially from her ability to convey her opinions and ideas to a broad audience in a really warm and engaging way, whilst tapping into conversations on zeitgeist issues that range from digital culture to feminism and everything in between. Having already got one book under her belt, her memoir Control or Delete, which is all about her experiences of growing up online, she's just written a second book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, which is out at the end of May which is essentially a workplace manifesto exploring the future of work and alternative ways of making a living outside of the traditional nine to five, whilst also explaining how she's grown her career as a self-employed person and just generally makes it work. And of course, we've also got our regular Agony Aunt segment, Ask a Tega. Today, I'll be sharing my thoughts with a listener who's had some pretty bruising experiences on the career front and as a result is struggling to find her confidence. First though, let's talk to Emma. So my new book that comes out very soon is called The Multi-Hyphen Method, uh, Work Less, Create More and Design a Career That Works For You. That sounds ideal. How can I do that? What is, what is The Multi-Hyphen Method? So The Multi-Hyphen Method is essentially a grown-up version of a lot of this sort of talk around being a slashy, so having loads of different roles to uh, what you do. But it's kind of bit more thought out than that it's not really the millennial stereotype of being a knitter versus a sewer versus a policeman versus you know like people love to kind of take the mick a bit of this career but this is really a book that's kind of showing that it's for everyone and it's great and I think everyone should do it. What made you decide to write it in the first place because I think knowing you pretty well as I do I know that it's very much representative of the way you work and the way you've built your career but what made you decide to kind of put this information down into a book well it's funny I actually went on YouTube last night and um, I typed my name in because I was looking for a video I'd just done and a video came up from five years ago I'm such a baby in the video. What was what was the video? It was about five tips to build your personal brand. Oh wow. And it was really kind of it's exactly what I'm talking about now yeah and I'm how old must I be then if it was five years ago? I'm like 22. Wow. 23. And I'm and I'm doing it. So I think I've always wanted to write this book. And I actually think my first book, Control-Alt-Delete, was a bit of a kind of uh, an experiment. But also it was this book, but a bit more in like memoir, young style. Yeah. And I'm finally writing the book that I feel like I was meant to write. The first book that you wrote, Control-Alt-Delete, was a memoir. And this is obviously more of like a business book and it's, you know, it's also nonfiction, but it's a very different genre. Like what was the difference for you in the process in terms of writing the first book and the second book? It's a really good question because actually with the first book, memoir is so personal. Mm. And I feel like with both books, I've had really clear intentions. Mm. So the first book was me going, I'm a feminist, I've (laughs) realised. And I don't like the fact that women are censored. And I don't like the fact that we can't write about our experiences. And we're judged for, you know, having periods and leaving our tampons out on the side. Why are things so still wrapped up in this taboo? Mm. So that book was really like, I'm going to be honest. And I'm going to talk about my sex life. I'm going to talk about my body. I'm going to talk about how I hated my body for so long and what society has done for me as a teenager or not done for me. And how the internet has really shaped me as a person. Mm. The second book, the intention behind it is 
if I was leaving university now, I'd be a bit confused. And I think a lot of us are confused at the working world right now, especially mm. when we have so much technology and so many tools, but we're still kind of floundering a bit. Mm. So both books, I feel like I've had a purpose to write them. It's not just kind of a vanity project or anything. And back to the most recent book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, um, something that really struck me when I was reading it, um, I read it over the weekend, is that you're talking about how you know the gig economy is on the rise and that's something we hear about a lot of places and there was a stat in your book which revealed that in America it's predicted that by 2020 nearly half of all workers will earn at least some of their income from freelance projects which is actually pretty mind-boggling if you think about it because 50 years ago I don't think I mean there have always been freelancers but I think for there to be such a shift in workplace culture mm-hmm. is quite quite major and I just wondered what you think is prompting this change and this shift. I think at the moment we're seeing big companies struggle to retain talent, essentially. Mm. And I think what's happening is that you build this amazing personal brand online. You've got all this work coming in. You have a reputation as a worker. People can Google you. There's a thing now called social recruiting, which means your employers are going to look online and recruit you based on what they see online and on social media. So it's sort of, I think it's more the way we're recruiting is changing. So Mm. actually... Instead of going, hello, you're great in the interview. I'm going to hire you for the next 15 years. It's going, (laughs) actually, who's best for this project that Mm. I've got coming up? And actually, maybe I want to hire this person for a month. Maybe I want to hire this person for three months. And I think, actually, that is good in some way for the employer and the employee. The employee is fresh, ready to go, ready to nail it and then leave and get paid probably more because they're getting paid by the hour. And the employer is getting an amazing person, an amazing team. The downside of this, obviously which you have to flag whenever you're writing a book like this, is, you know, zero hour contracts are Mm. bad because that means the employer is, you know, not in control, basically. And this book really is about empowering yourself, taking back control. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, actually. I wanted to bring that up because I think one criticism of the gig economy is or freelancing and just kind of self-employment is certainly that this new way of working can really sort of lead to exploitation of workers because freelancers you know and I'm self-employed they generally have fewer labor rights they're maybe not as protected by workplace you know regulations they can be a bit disposable and especially for women that can be quite a vulnerable setup so I was just wondering whether you have any advice for self-employed particularly women but just self-employed people in general on how best they can navigate that and some of the Mm -hmm. stuff that you've said in your book that you can maybe share yeah well It's a really good point. And I think there's a lot out there that says, you know, loads of reasons why you wouldn't want to be self-employed. I think there was a statistic a while ago, which was like, on average, a freelancer earns like 10 grand a year. Like, that's not, that's not good. But in the book, I actually ban the use of the word freelancer. Why? Why is that? I don't like the word. I know you, we've talked about this before, you don't like it. And sometimes I hesitate to refer to myself of a freelancer because of a conversation that you and I have had. Why don't you like it? I think it has negative connotations. I also think that if you say you're a freelancer, you're basically putting yourself just in a pile of like other people that are just like you. I'm mm. a freelancer, you're a freelancer, we do the same thing. Mm. That that says to me, if I'm an employer, I'm like, I don't care if I get a freelancer one or freelancer two. Mm. This book is about actually creating your own ecosystem of projects, having multiple income streams and really kind of being at the centre of it as someone with a brand. I know that personal branding is, you know, overused probably, but it's so important. And actually, I was thinking about this the other day about how being a woman in the workplace, all these obstacles that we still have to fight against, such as, you know, if we get pregnant, we need to get time off or being judged or... Um, not taken seriously or not being paid the same, a personal brand is so important for women, especially. It's saying, look at what I can do. Look how good I am. Yeah, personal branding is one of the things that I talk about most with what I do with Women Who. And, you know, when I've run workshops on personal branding, they've sold out in a flash. Like people are really starting to understand. Yes, it's a bit of a cheesy, jargony, corporate speak kind of term, but it's important. And I think that's a really good point that you've just made about the kind of free distinction between freelancing and self-employed. I'm going to stop or try to stop referring to myself as a freelancer. I just think you're beyond a freelancer, you know, yeah. what, you're, what you're building. And I have a, a business. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you're right, definitely. I think I kind of think of 
myself as two separate entities. There's like Otega the freelancer and then there's Otega the founder of Women Who, but they're all the same thing. So I, I suppose, thank you. That's advice that I can take. I learn something new every day when I talk to you. Um, something you talk about in the book actually a lot that I found really interesting because it's not something that I'm necessarily that clued up on um, was about the importance of future-proofing careers. And like, what, what do you mean by that? And how can people take steps towards doing that? Essentially, future-proofing just means making sure that you don't become irrelevant. Like, that's the harsh kind of definition of it, I think. Mm. It's it's like if you future-proof a piece of machinery, it means that it should um, make it should be relevant and useful and, yeah, put to good use in the future, basically. Mm. So I think with future-proofing, really what I'm saying is... I'm not saying everyone should be a freelancer or everyone should be self-employed. That's totally not what I'm saying in the book. There's actually a section called like, don't quit your job. But what I am saying is make sure that on the side, you're doing something Mm. that teaches you a new skill. Mm. Because you could look up in five years time at your desk and everyone has been at that company that you probably haven't had a training session that's been in date. You're probably looking at outside skills that you don't have. Technology moves so quickly. So really, it's just a call to action, really, of like, you might love your job. Great but make sure you're playing around and experimenting outside of it as well. Yeah, whilst for everyone listening, whilst Emma's been talking just now, I've just been nodding along furiously (laughs) because I literally could not agree more. I think something that has become so much more important to me since I became self-employed, which was about two and a half years ago now, is, you know, I think the fancy term is like autodidactism. I don't know if I've pronounced that right, but essentially means, yeah, I love using it. I love (laughs) writing it, but I think it essentially means like self-taught learning so doing courses reading loads of like non-fiction going to talks and all of that like I'm really conscious of the need to keep my mind sharp and current and like especially when you're self-employed just keep developing your skill set and your knowledge you're base so good at that yeah I feel like you I, go to lots of things yeah I do and when I haven't for a while and then when I kind of resume doing it I'm like oh my brain feels like it's on fire like it's also like interesting I think it's so important but I was curious as to what you do like how do you because you're constantly like evolving your career I feel like even in the time that I've known you which has been about two years mm. there's been shifts and then shifts and then shifts how do you make sure that you're developing your skills is that something that you actively think about it's a good question actually because I don't actively do it in the sense of today I'm going to read up on some trends but like it kind of is part of my I guess daily um, work I think that knowledge is money and power and and everything. Like you need knowledge to survive right now in the workplace and and I think we should be teaching people to make sure that they know enough. And they know, you know, stuff like where their data's going and all that stuff. You know, we're we're all learning. But um yeah, so I sign up to newsletters. I mean, I'm talking to someone who does one right now. That's very good. Um I use Pocket, which is a newsletter uh, which you know curates amazing articles uh, that I read. Lots of newsletters because I feel like who has time to be scrolling through millions of do- uh, social media platforms now? Mm. I just want it all coming to me. Um, but also, you know, I consume, I make what I consume. So, you know, I started my podcast two and a half years ago now, but that was because. I follow America as well. Yeah. America just does everything first. We've talked about that as well before. Yeah. Like I do sometimes feel like in terms of culture and media and trends and like demographic shifts and like workplace shifts, it always just feels like they're so ahead of the curve. Like with the whole like the wing, we've talked about mm. that, you know, the female co-working space. And as soon as it opened, it was like, God, why hasn't someone done this before? And then it was like, of course it started in New York. Like it was never going to yeah. be. And, you know, people have obviously done that before in, in various formats and on a lesser scale, but you know, the way they've just like absolutely nailed the game and like the branding and the time was so ripe for that. But of course, the first person to do it was like this New Yorker. I thought Mm. that was so interesting. I mean, you do lots of different things, which I do too, like, you know, writing, speaking, podcasts, like we have so much overlap in what we do, but how do you sort of build which is something that's really important to me is feeling like I kind of have like a mastery of my craft. Like how do you ensure that you build expertise? And do you feel like there's a bit of a trade-off involved with being a multi-hyphenate? Because sometimes I do, like, and I say that about myself. I sometimes feel very conscious of if I was just concentrating on writing, then wow, maybe I'd be this amazing writer getting these amazing commissions and I'd be known for that. But sometimes I feel like because I spread myself over like four or five different areas... I'm never going to be as good at any one of them as I want to be. Like, how do you feel about that? 
Yeah, well, I think that's totally right. I think there is a trade-off. I think there's definitely a trade-off. You know, if you want to be the best drummer in the world, you can't play the drums a bit and then like play the violin on the side. You know, like <laughs> yeah. you have to like be on tour and be amazing or you don't. And I think yeah. what really I'm presenting in the book is actually just a lifestyle choice. So it's like, you know, if you don't want to hit it that hard, if you don't want to be this like crazy expert person who is being just doing that one thing for, for your whole life. If you want to look back and go, oh, I had some like real variety in my life. You know, this book is for you. And also what's really interesting about the book, I think, from the research I did was that you can have a skill that is actually really niche, but it's across different jobs. Mm. So, for example, I interviewed this guy who is a podcaster and a chef. And he was saying that actually the skill involved with both of those is not obvious, but it's the same. It's chopping up different parts of something and making a whole you know, oh, wow. it's like the ingredients that go into the edit makes yeah. this amazing piece at the end. And that's the same as a recipe. And like audio is a recipe. I was like, this is blowing my mind because <laughs> yeah. what you're saying is that actually you are good at one thing. You're just doing it in lots of different ways. Yeah. And just, I just love that. Yeah, I feel like that's what you do as well. I, I think one of your skills that or one of the many skills that you have is your ability to kind of convey you know, your opinions and your ideas and often those of others in a really warm and engaging way and just really tap into the zeitgeist. And that's essentially what you're doing all the time. But you do that as a speaker. You do that as a broadcaster, a podcaster. You do that as a writer. Like, it's all, not to be reductive about what you do, but it's all the same thing, but you're just applying it to different formats. So actually maybe it is that you do have expertise in that one thing, that skill of conveying information in that way. And, and and capturing what is happening, kind of being really kind of current ahead of the curve, but you're just choosing a couple of different formats as opposed to just one. That's that, so interesting. I never thought of it like that. But yeah. yeah. I'd never thought about it like that until just yeah. now. But actually what you've said has made me feel a bit better about my feeling like, oh, sometimes I'm compromising on being as good as one thing because actually, I, I guess what is my kind of thing? It's like kind of helping women and helping working women. And I do that in lots of different ways. But actually maybe... I'm really good at that one thing. And so I, yeah, it's quite, I don't know, it's just kind of occurring to me. I'm literally thinking out loud here. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it's, you know, being um, adaptable is a really amazing trait. You know, I, I do like to think of myself as a bit of a chameleon. Like I can just change, mm. you know, what I'm doing and, and, and blend in a bit. But I think when we talk about the job for life, which obviously I think a lot of, you know, maybe older generations will pick up this book and be like, oh, not for me. And I'm like, no, it is for you. Mm. Because I think... You're less secure, actually, if you're good at one thing now. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, everyone can do what they want. You know, I'm not on like a campaign trail with a flag, like, mm. must be a multi-hyphenate, not at all. But I do think that if you want to feel really sort of secure in your future, be, you know, dip your toe into multiple things because you know, we just don't know what's happening. And I know I don't want to be this scaremonger who's like, the robots are coming, like none of that. <laughs> well, they are. But, but you know, we, we do have to be changeable. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like you, like if, God forbid, in fact, God forbid both of us, if like podcasting suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth and it was banned by the government or whatever, we'd have other things to do and other things under our belt, and other forms of work. And we had other things two years ago yeah exactly like, we haven't always done this and yeah. it's like you know you can't really get too complacent which is also also good i read a couple of articles recently that kind of argue against the notion of turning like your hobbies into a side hustle um i say side hustle in inverted commas but you know kind of trying to formalize or monetize your hobbies and make them you know like a key part of your career there was a really great one by Anne friedman for the cart vicky spratt mm. wrote one the debrief and the message was essentially not every hobby needs to be a side hustle because it essentially turns what is a leisure activity that you do for fun into work and it's an obligation and obviously that changes your relationship with it and I was just wondering what you think because maybe I've gotten this wrong but some of the message of the multi-hyphen method I thought was kind of around doing that and turning hobbies into side hustles but I was wondering like where do you draw the line? There's actually a section in the book called when you shouldn't turn your hobbies into side hustles because of exactly this. So there's a bit where I talk about how to distinguish what your side hustle, what you want it to be. Mm. It might be you want to be like, I don't know, 
I feel like I want to say Mark Zuckerberg, but he's like tainted at the moment. Yeah, he's but, definitely tainted. <laughs> not, like, his brand isn't what it used to no. be. <laughs> I'm like, who's a really good entrepreneur that's like, you Elon know. Elon Musk? Um, maybe, yeah, maybe. No, maybe, why are we naming okay, men? Yes, maybe it's like a Whitney Wolf. Yeah, I think I think it's because of the reference point, sadly. It's like, well, yeah. who's taken a tiny little seed and turned it to a billion dollar industry? Yeah. I mean, there, there are women, of course. And um, yeah, Whitney Wolf, for example, yeah. Emily Weiss. Yeah. All these amazing women. Exactly. Some people, their side hustle literally was that, you know, she was working at Teen Vogue, wasn't she, Emily mm. Weiss? And her side hustle was her blog and now mm. her blog is Glossier. Like that is a side hustle example done good. Yeah. But then you've got these <laughs> side hustles that literally are the fact that you want to play guitar in the evenings mm. or the fact that you want to write a blog, but actually that blog is private or anonymous or just feeding a creative mm. side of you. There's an example I use in the book of a friend of mine who like loves baking. Mm. Technically, that's like her kind of side thing because mm. it makes her less, hate her job less because mm. she gets <laughs> home and she's like, oh yeah, I'm having some me time. But that doesn't mean go and start a bakery. That doesn't mean go and put loads of money into this business idea. And I think it's a really important distinction to make because you can end up hating your side project that brought you so much joy. Yeah, I think the narrative these days is around that and I'm wary and I encourage people to turn hobbies into side hustles, but I am wary of not leaving room for something for hobbies to remain hobbies. Because I think you, yeah, like you say, just because you like baking doesn't mean you have to like draw up branding and business cards and suddenly be a <laughs> professional baker. You know, you yeah. can just do things to enjoy. And I think not feeling pressure to kind of, like you say, kind of flip and monetize every single aspect of your life, I think is something to bear in mind because you have to remember why you're doing things and if you're starting a side hustle with an intention of turning it into a business fine yeah but if you have a hobby don't think you just have to in order to legitimize it it has to suddenly start paying the bills as well totally and, and that's another reason why I wanted to write so much about boundaries because you know the professional and the personal lines blur the work and play blur and actually I feel really kind of confident now in saying that's work and that's not yeah um, from the outside people might not really get it but I know when I'm working and I know when I'm not yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up with you because I feel like for better or worse, I really define myself by my career and what I do for a living. I'm sure you're the same. Um, and my identity is so wrapped up in work, which isn't necessarily a healthy thing sometimes. Um, and there was a really great quote in your book that really stood out to me. It was by the author Will Self, who said, the idea of not working and working are locked into an unholy and reciprocal relationship with each other. The fact that you're not working is only because you've been working. And the fact that you're working is only so you can not work. And I just thought that really illustrated really well how central work is to our lives. But how, you know, on the one hand, it's a real binary. But for you and me, actually, that like divide is kind of blurring and it's kind of becoming more and more non-existent. Like this is work technically, but also I'm hanging out with a friend. So mm. what is this? Like, I, you know, I don't really understand like, recording of this podcast. It's it's blurred. Yeah. Um, and we had a coffee beforehand, you know, it's the line. I mean, it's blurring. like the most luxurious Monday morning. Yeah, you exactly. Know, I feel so lucky to be what I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. The fact that this is our Monday morning and sometimes I do, you know, I was on a train the other day um, to give a talk and like I had to get up super early. And I was like, so moany. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, isn't it amazing that people invite me to come and speak and want to hear my opinions and pay me for it and to talk about stuff that I like? It was it just suddenly hit me. Like I think I put something on Instagram. I was like, yeah. this is it was after I'd been reading your book actually. I was like, this is madness and not something I'd ever have thought, you know, in my early twenties or in my late teens. And I guess that's the positive of this world we're living in is that actually the barrier to entry is lower. The um the fact that so many different people can earn money doing what they're good at. I think that the access point is a bit easier now. If you want to make a podcast, make one. If you mm. want to release an album. I mean, I can't stop thinking about Cardi B at the moment. Yeah, so, right. like, put out a mixtape. And then, I mean, I know her, you know, she's hustled. But essentially, she has, you know, carved out this niche for herself and put the work in and she's seeing the results. And I think, can't really compare her journey really to anyone, but you know, self-published authors or people that have made a podcast show and then they now have a radio show. It's like, yeah. we can put out whatever we want on the internet and yeah. get work from it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you can be self-made. Like I would say Cardi B, yeah, she might have a record label, but she's the epitome of self-made. Like that's yeah. the beauty of tech. And that's, you know, her career essentially started through her Instagram and her being really funny and witty and building up followers. And then it just kind of took off from there. And that wouldn't 
have happened in the same way. Mm. You know, her thing is that she's like a stripper from the Bronx. That wouldn't have happened for a stripper from the Bronx 10, 15 years ago. It's, I think it's insane and it's really democratic in a way. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and actually find out a little bit more about you and your career history. Um, like what, what did you do after leaving university? What was your first job? Yeah, so my first job when I left university was working at a PR agency. And looking back, I couldn't be more pleased that that was my first job. Uh, it was gruelling. And I was literally on my hands and knees, like building things with an Allen key to send out to send out to journalists. I remember like, literally, my hand was bleeding because I'd like had to build from scratch, like this make it yourself piece of furniture that I was sending to a journalist. Anyway, I'm just saying like you come out of university with like a two one really proud of yourself. And then you're in the basement of a PR company, like bleeding. <laughs> like It was grueling. Um, anyway, so that happened. And but oh my God, it taught me a lot. And I was that intern that did anything. I was not above anything at that yeah. place. And I had to sell in really quite dry brands like laundry detergent and like batteries and like hair, you know, shampoo and stuff and make it sound interesting. And isn't that what we do now, PR, a lot of our projects? And what were your career ambitions at that point? Like was PR something that you had had your heart set on or was it just something you fell into? Or did you know at that point that you kind of wanted to go into writing and blogging and all of what you're doing now? Oh my God, I had no idea. I did English literature because I just thought, oh, I like words and I like books. <laughs> and like, literally, it's the only thing I'm I good read. at. <laughs> yeah, like, literally, the one thing I can do is read and write some words. That's so not true. Um, so I I did that. And then and then I graduated and I literally me- remember Googling, what jobs can you get with an English literature degree? I'm sure I did something similar when I left uni. And it was like teacher, PR, um, and a few other things. And so I just thought, oh, what's PR? Googled what PR was. I mean, honestly, clueless. Um, but I, I knew deep down I was always going to write. Like I have tons of piles of diaries in my room. I've got magazine cuttings. I've, you know, these parts of your childhood, you should really pay attention to them. Yeah. Like what is it that you do when no one's asking you to do it? That's kind of what you love doing. Do you know what? That's so true. When I started Women Who, um, I remember this is like one of the most touching things, but after the launch event, one of my school friends who like we've been friends since I was like 11 came and she gave me this card, which I didn't open or read till the next morning. And it was a photo of us when we were sort of like 15 at school. It was some sort of like women in leadership program that I'd like started and was running. I know, I don't even know where she got it from. And in her letter, she was like, you know, this is such a natural thing for you to be doing. Like you've been doing this forever like this is such a did you remember doing that no no I I just hadn't I hadn't joined the dots like that it wasn't until she said that I was like oh my god this is always what I've been passionate about I've always been a feminist like I always did get involved with sort of like women's programs and feminism all of that sort of thing would write about it and luckily my school really nurtured that in me and allowed me to do that but it wasn't until Mm -hmm. she said that I was like yeah this is like such a logical thing for me to be doing um so yeah I think it's really true like paying attention to what your interests have always been is a really great way of finding yourself. And it can be something really small. It could be like you're a really good listener or you're like really opinionated or just something that actually you think is um, maybe even a flaw. Like it's probably a good thing. Yeah. And then your blog, at what point did you start that? That was originally called Girl Lost in City. What stage, what made you decide to start that? That blog name makes me cringe now. Like an old Hotmail address. (laughs) Like fluffy hen 62 I think it was of its time I I definitely think it was yeah I don't think yeah and also I feel like um you look back on things you did and all I feel is like everything makes you cringe yeah for you like 19 year old me like you you were 19 I started a blog when I was 19 yeah and then I changed it to girl lost in the city it's called oh my god do you want to know what it was called before yeah it was called country girl to city girl oh Emma (laughs) Emma I'm literally dying (laughs) so funny so yeah that was me like in my bedroom in in the countryside Mm -hmm. um so yeah I was dying to get to a city but anyway I yeah did that and that was when blogs started kind of taking off I remember like the telegraph would put like the top 10 blogs there was only 10 blogs that were doing well and everyone else just had one and then um I just remember getting brands kind of coming to me and saying do you want to work together yeah, so I wanted to find out, like, how did that blog start? I mean, besides Control or Delete Your Book, which obviously I think that's maybe maybe the biggest opportunity that it translates to, but how, on a kind of smaller level, did that start translating to other opportunities for you? Did you go out and seek people? Was it all, at first, initially inbound? Oh, it was, yeah, it was all inbound. 
I remember ASOS getting in touch and like Diesel and like all these brands just being like, do you want to collaborate? And, but that was, I think, maybe about four years after doing it. So it's four years of absolutely no sort of income or, or praise or I think my mum read it. You know, yeah. it really is like I did it for myself, hand on heart, did it for myself. Yeah. And I think people that needs to be said more often because I think we do. And I'm guilty of it as well. We're in an age and our generation, I think, do kind of expect a kind of instantaneous success. And if something hasn't paid off after like four months, you're like, ah, oh, it's not, it's not working. Whereas you plugged away for four years before things started to take off. And I don't know that a lot of people would expect or have that level of patience or realize that that's actually what it takes for things to get good and for you to get good at what you're doing. And it's funny as well, because you started blogging at this point in time when you were, I hope this doesn't sound insulting, but you are in the right place at the right time in terms of timing. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing again, I think with podcasting, like you just ahead of the curve. And when, I, I, how have you done that? Like, what's your secret? I don't like, is this something you've consciously been aware of? But I think that's, that's, those are two examples that it's like, that's more than a coincidence where you kind of spotted this format and been like, I'm going to insert myself into that space. Yeah, it's a weird one because I do think I I do think I'm quite good at that though. Mm. I and I can't really put my finger on it. Like I just think that I'm I like to watch like a landscape of of activity happening and then be like, "Oh, that's peaking or oh, that's not so good or good job I didn't start a Vine account." Like mm. that sort <laughs> yeah. of thing where you're just like, "Oh, I'm going to like jump in on that." But I also think I just give myself a break and just think, "Just try it. Yeah. What's the worst that can happen?" Yeah. The podcast might not have been a success. I might have done like five episodes and been like, that was nice. But at the same time, what did I gain? Well, I gained amazing conversations with people. I think that it's it's a it's a skill to know what's in and what's trending and what suits you, mm. but it's also a skill to know that's not for me. Yeah, I think that's I am true. so glad and this is not I'm not throwing any shade on anyone who does this, mm. but I'm so glad I didn't start a YouTube channel. Yeah. I I that was not for me. That was yeah. just 100% not a platform that I would feel comfortable on. I would hate that there would be videos of me from like when I was in my early 20s floating around online. I think part of what I've built is being very choosy with the platforms as mm. well. Um, and then when you went, sorry, I was about to say freelance, <laughs> <laughs> you became self-employed about, was it two and a half years ago? And what made you decide to do that? Um, I was working in a magazine and... I just knew that it wasn't what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And it's sad. You know, mm -hmm. it's not fun to watch an industry go under a bit. Freelancing for magazines is not in any way a moneymaker. Mm -hmm. And magazines have so many people involved, so many like stakeholders, so many bosses and CEOs that any decision takes ages. So actually, they a magazine I worked at um, asked me to start a podcast for them. And I just, I went home that night and I was like, do I want to start a podcast for someone else or do I want to make my own? And I just thought I want to make my own because I just knew it'd be easier and it'd be more enjoyable. And actually we're in this world, like we were saying earlier, where you can do anything. And I'd just shown that through my blog, started making money through the blog and had money in my bank account. And I was like, this is the time. This is the time to do it. Mm. I think as well, ownership and independence of your work and your creative output is something that I really strive for and I think is really important for creatives and especially female creatives. So I can see why in some cases, you know, having the platform of like a giant magazine, giant publisher helping you create something is great. But then often, you know, they own the product. They control how you make it. You don't have like literally no one tells you how to make your podcast now, whereas that wouldn't be the case when you've got five levels of approval and someone decides that this artwork isn't working, you know, all of this stuff. And and you just... don't need a you don't need that household brand anymore. I mean, yeah. part of my career journey and the part of the reputation I've created with what I do is because I was like, oh, I used to write an online column for The Telegraph. Oh, I used to work for Condé Nast. Oh, yeah, I used to work for this brand. So I'm not poo-pooing any of that. And, and I guess with, with your advertising background, you know, mm. it does make a difference. Yeah, definitely. But I think now it's really exciting because you can build your own platform, have all these listeners and then... You know, Universal invited me to interview like Greta Gerwig. That was so cool. And she only had like a few hours in London and I was picked and another magazine was picked. And I think, you know, a TV channel was picked. But the old magazine I worked at, they weren't picked. Yeah. So actually I've created a platform that kind of media supersedes channel. where I was. Yeah. And that is really exciting. That's really, really cool. I mean, when you became self-employed, 
at what stage did you know when you were making that decision at what stage did you know that you were ready to do that both professionally and also financially professionally I just could see that the clock was ticking on you know working in-house mm-hmm. at a media company that financially was struggling yeah. I also think that I have to be really upfront and honest that I just got a book deal okay. through my blog okay. okay and so the book was kind of about to come out and then you know you get an advance for writing a book and you know it's not like mil- it's not like on a beach with a pina colada yeah, I retired it, <laughs> but it's enough to be like oh my god I could maybe have three months not worrying or you know whatever so I that came at a really really good time yeah and you know I, I I without that I think I would have had to stay there longer maybe and saved mm. um so yeah and how did you adapt to self-employment? Was it a steep learning curve for you? Was there anything that you think you'd have done differently? Maybe that people listening to this who are about to embark on self-employment might be able to learn from? I was so high on the freedom of self-employment. I, yeah. I was definitely that person who was just like working in the park, like, yes, <laughs> I love my life. I think that wears off, obviously. It's a real novelty at the beginning. But I definitely took on projects that I didn't really tell anyone about. Because I think this is part of the whole front of house personal brand thing Mm. is you don't have to always be like, I'm working on this project when it's totally sort of not really doesn't really align with what you want to make. Bills payer. Yeah, I did loads of bill paying. Mm. I did like uh, Skype consultancy for a few people, uh, hotel owners and people who wanted to grow their social media profile. And I do yeah an hour long Skype session and be paid for that. But I wasn't going to go on Twitter and be, you know shout about that because Mm. that was just a moneymaker so I think at the beginning I just started doing projects that you know weren't so you know uh, I don't know outwardly impressive and then as I started getting more and more projects you'd then pick ones to be like oh I'm doing this and it's really great yeah so it's I think it's really important what you choose to share and what you choose to hold back as well you're not lying you're not deceiving anyone and if anyone asks me I would say the truth Mm. but I think the front of house thing is really important yeah I think that's an important conversation to have because I do think from you know people can feel a little bit insecure that they maybe have to do that bills paying work because they look around and all the other self-employed people they know only seem to be sharing this like amazing collab and it's like no everyone has or to a greater or lesser extent most people have that stuff that they kind of have to do or it's not quite as on brand for them but it's like oh maybe it pays three times more than the fun stuff I still do straight up money work now I mean it's it's I'm lucky now because I you know I do get to choose and I'll never do anything that totally is like, oh, I don't want to do that. And that is an amazing place to be that I look forward to most things now. But I remember um, a friend of mine who had a column and I was like, oh my God, you've got a column, so exciting. And it's the Carrie Bradshaw myth of, oh, you must be... Like, who is loaded from having a magazine column? No one. And um, (laughs) we were told when we watched Sex and the City that you get loads of shoes and stuff. That she lived in, you know... (laughs) Manhattan with like a Manolo Blahnik you know habit off the back of that one column a week like it was absurd and I remember listening to someone who has a very prestigious column and she was saying that you know she does copywriting for toothpaste brands yeah and there's nothing wrong with that yeah totally I definitely do both agree with that and before we move on I actually really want to very quickly return to talking about the podcast because you kind of talked about why you started it but when you started it, did you have any inkling that it might be something you'd be able to monetize further down the line? Because you now have advertisers and sponsors. And I know that's, you know, is a significant portion of your income or, you know, it certainly makes you money. But did you have that in the back of your mind when you started it? I didn't, actually. It was totally a marketing tool for the book. So at the beginning of all my earlier episodes, there's a plug for the book saying... You know, this is the podcast control. Delete. I talk to guests about the chapters in my book. You should buy my book on Amazon. Blah blah blah. Mm. And so, actually, I always, I was always getting something out of it from that, from that perspective. But um, I had no idea how many people listened to podcasts back then. Mm. I remember, you know, I'd be really chuffed if I was getting like fifty thousand um, viewers on my blog per month. Mm. I was like, that's that's cool. Mm. That's a good amount a month. Mm. Thousands and thousands of people download podcasts every day. And I was getting that in like a day on the yeah. podcast. I was like, what is going on here? There's a lot of people listening and a lot of people with iPhones who are subscribed. They might not follow me on Twitter. They might not follow me on Facebook, but they're getting a direct piece of content to their phone. Mm. This is crazy. And um, yeah, and I, and you know, if I'm being honest, 
I probably would have stopped the podcast after the first however many episodes if it wasn't making me any money because who can do something, you know, for that long? And we talk a lot about this, you know, as being authors. There's certain things you do for the book. Mm. I'll do that event for the book. I'll Mm. go to that festival for free for the book. Mm. And and the podcast was that for me, for Mm. the book. Mm. And then now, I mean, it's a mini business for sure. Yeah. At what point did the advertisers and sponsorship come along and did you approach them or was it vice versa? So I'm with Acast who, you know, they are, when I met them, they just moved into a tiny little office and they were, you know, they had hardly any desks and it was, they just launched. Now they've got a massive office and they're growing and they look after loads of podcasts. I got in there really early with them, got a really good relationship with them and they act as a sort of middleman between the sponsors. So, you you know, they they, they manage all of that and they say, hey, I've, this person's interested. Like yesterday, Ace and Tate, the glasses. Oh, yeah. They got in touch saying oh, we cool. really want to sponsor you and stuff like that's amazing. You know, I get a voucher to get some new specs yeah. and I get to talk about genuinely a glasses brand that I've liked for a long time. Yeah. Perfect collaboration. And then you get things that just aren't right. I mean, like a, a diet yogurt or something mm, the other day. Mm, like, no, no, no. Mm. So really am picky with who I work with still. But um, why not make money off something that people listen to? I think of it like, you know, if you read Vogue, you have to flick through so many pages to get to the actual content. With my p- podcast, yes, you might find it really annoying to have 30 second ad at the beginning. But sorry, you're getting a 40 minute amazing episode. So, for free. For free. Yeah. So yeah, I people ask me about it though. They're like, oh, your ads are really annoying sometimes. What? How but, dare they? I mean, okay, I'm, that's literally 0.1% of people say that because I don't get any beef at all about that. But when I do, I just think, no, no, I can hold my own here. Like, yeah. I can't make this for free. I think people these days are often so entitled to free content. And so then they, you know, and maybe not in your case, but I know definitely people can kind of of sometimes resent like sponsored, you know, sponsorship ads and all of Mm. that and skip ads. And it's like, you're getting, that's paying for you. Either the brands pay for it or you pay for it. Pick one. You can't have both because someone needs to be paid here somewhere. I just find it really galling. Like I think when you work within media, um, you kind of, tend to understand that and have an appreciation of it but I think outside of that world often there's a real sense of entitlement um and like ownership over the stuff that you, you're not entitled to that you just don't have a, a stake in in that way so totally I, I mean if people wanted to pay per episode for no ads uh, let's do it yeah if you exactly. want to do like a Netflix type thing cool but at the moment it's like a YouTube type thing you know you get a pre-roll and then you watch a music video for free yeah pick one totally exactly. Um, and what does the process of putting it together each week look like? Do you know, it's really haphazard. <laughs> People think I'm really planned with it. I have a loose schedule. Um, it's weekly. I have bonus episodes, which are live episodes. Mm. If I'm really busy, those live episodes are that episode of the week. <laughs> um, and then I have things like a crazy, amazing guest gets in touch. Um, I can't say who it is because I... I will jinx myself, but someone got in touch saying, you know, this A-lister wants to come on. And then I go, okay, let's make room for this. Because yeah. I'm technically booked up until June now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will shift things around if, if things come up. And wow. I guess if you think about it, it's very much like a magazine, you know, when you plan things, but then things come up or or actually I want to do something around like Valentine's Day because it's February. You know, yeah. I do sort of factor in that sort of thing as well. Yeah. And more generally, this might be a question that you that you can't answer but what does an average week of work look like for you I was going to say an average day but I think an average day is so varied but like in a week like what do you spend your time doing do you have like a daily routine that you try to follow no no and you know what I've really struggled with this because I felt like I have to have a routine Mm. if someone interviews me for a magazine what am I gonna say Mm. I have no routine (laughs) oh my god um no no routine hands up no routine Every week is different and that would not suit some people. Mm. Genuinely, I know a lot of people who would hate my lifestyle, <laughs> but I love it. I love that every week is different. Um, so there's only there's a, there's a few things, though, that I will say. Um, I have to have at least one or two days a week at my desk yeah, because I could be out at meetings or doing things or at events all the time at the mm. moment. And I'm like, I need to get my work done. Yeah. I've become way better with emails morning and afternoon. Really? Yeah. I'm still trying to do and, that. And, you know, the naughty sort of on the sofa checking, maybe sometimes replying <laughs> stuff. But I'm not sitting at my desk just replying to emails anymore. I'm really over emails. Yeah. I'm 
definitely over emails and I've been experimenting I think this year definitely I've been experimenting with lots of different things for a while I deleted uh gmail because I use the app off my phone but then I would just go on safari and log in like you know when I was because <laughs> yeah. I was like I was like I just want to check my emails when I'm at home at my desk if I'm out on the out you know out and about there's no need for me to be checking my emails really but then oh I'm on my way to a meeting and I don't have the address so it's in my you know so that yeah. didn't work um I think maybe I need to start doing the three three times a day kind of thing but it's hard because there is so much inbound traffic and like you say I could literally spend all of my time replying to emails if I so chose but I wouldn't get any of the real work done I remember when I went on holiday at the start of this year for um for about two it was about two weeks and when I came back I actually got through the initial like all of my emails like over the weekend just really quickly but then there was just a natural backlog and I felt for weeks I was like gosh I feel like I get a lot of emails is this how it always is or is it just because I you know was away for a bit and forgotten about it but I think there has to be a better way because right now it just I think the payoff of spending time emailing it's just often not there yeah um, it's true and I've at the moment actually got an out of office on I've seen yeah because I just think I'm you know I work with people now and actually it's not if I miss something actually thank God someone else can pick it up mm. because that was a really hard thing about being self-employed at the beginning. The weight is just on your shoulders and I and I found that hard. And what is the most challenging aspect of what you do for a living? Well, I suppose carrying on from that thought, I say that I work with other people and that the weight is not just on my shoulders, but at the end of the day, I'm at the very helm of what I've created I am, you know, at the centre of it. Work can't really get done without me. So I, I booked a holiday actually a few months ago, a ski trip with loads of my friends and I was in the chalet working. Mm, I saw. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's really important to admit and say, you know, like that was rubbish. That was the first time I genuinely said out loud, I wish I just had a normal job. Mm. I really, really was like, why can't I just go on a frigging holiday? And, you know, it's fine. It was exciting. It was about my book cover. It was about some interviews that I had lined up. It was some edits on the book. It was write, writing my acknowledgements. It was all this stuff that needed to be done and it needed to be done then. And that you would enjoy if it were maybe at another time. Yes, exactly that. So mm. in terms of timings, and you probably get this a lot, you know, when it's like, oh, hi, um, we need this uh, by tomorrow, end of day. Like that still happens a lot. Mm. And so I think that's what I don't like. But I think you get that in most jobs, don't you? Yeah, you do. Although I was having a conversation with a friend last night and I was saying to him that when I went from, you know, working full time for, you know, an agency to where I am now being self-employed, I found it a lot easier to switch off when I was working for someone else. Like when I went on holiday, when I was in full-time employment, I'd put that out of office on and I would not check my emails if someone literally paid me to I was being paid but like yeah. I had no qualms about just being like this is who you should contact and I didn't open my inbox till I was back at my desk after a holiday when I went to Mexico you know back to that again at the start of this year I put an out of office on and I my plan was to not check my emails at all you can't do that when you're self-employed and so I you know I was very strict I I didn't engage in any work I didn't respond to most emails that came in but I did check them. And then if certain things came in, like, you know, someone wants me to do a talk that I really want to do. And, you know, two weeks is a long time. If I don't reply for two weeks, they will probably move on. So I would just say, hi, I'm currently on holiday, but I am interested. I'll get back to you on this yeah. date. And that was how I managed it. But I suddenly realized, and that was kind of the first long holiday I've had since I'd become self-employed. And I was like, oh, I, I can't manage my life and my out of office in that same mm. way. Like I do, to an extent, have to be on all yeah. the time um, that's a, I really was interested how you handled that I thought it was really good that you shared that because I think there's people listening to this right now some of them might be like I'm oh, thank thank god I've got my day job and thank god I can go on holiday without that like yeah. I am so glad that I can switch off and be just me yeah but I on the flip side think I can take holiday whenever I want exactly I don't have four or five weeks I don't have to tell anyone I don't have to approve it and also I can go and have a bath at midday if I want to if yeah. I'm working from home so I think this conversation and that's why I've got a chapter in the book about failure and setbacks and obstacles and th things that go wrong and the downsides because this is not one is better than the other mm. and 
What are the key sort of money or finance lessons that you've learned over the years, whether it's from when you were in full-time employment or self-employed? Like, I'm curious as to how your relationship with, we talk about money loads, you and yeah, I, and you yeah, talk about yeah. money loads, and I think it's really important. But I'm curious as to what your relationship with money is like and how that's changed. It's made me so much better with money. When I had a salary, it was salary goes in, salary gets spent. <laughs> salary goes in, salary gets spent. Easy. Tax mm. gets taken off. Mm. National insurance ta- gets taken off. You know, all of that stuff has been taken care of. In some way, that sounds easier, and it is. But that made me really bad with money because mm. I had no responsibility because I knew that I'd get paid on the Friday and who cares if I, you know, go into my overdraft a bit. Now it's like... <laughs> You know, you get you invoice for like a lot of money that you think is a lot of money. because You're like, oh, my God, amazing. I'm paying I'm I'm invoicing like five grand for this project Mm. that I've worked, you know, maybe a week on. Great. But like you have to put loads of that away into, you know, taxes. Mm. You have to make sure that that, you know, doesn't get spent because you might have a slow month the next month. I pay my agent 20%, mm. who is amazing and worth every penny, but still mm. that comes off. Um, VAT, like all An this accountant. stuff, accountant, and he's not cheap. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of mind games when it comes to money. On the surface, you think I'm earning loads. And then you think, well, actually, it's not as much as you think it is. Yeah. And so, you know, all of that has made me wake up a bit, to be honest. Definitely. I So I use an online accounting software. So I have an accountant, but... Um, the way he kind of accesses my accounts is I put everything through this online software called Zero, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. Loads of people use it. Um, but sometimes I get like a false picture of how much money I have because I just see the like, you know, dollar dollar bills like I've been paid. And I f- always forget to be like, oh, OK, well, I'm VAT registered. So that's an instant like 20 percent off. And then I'm, I'm really good about putting money aside for tax. But it's just, I forget how many outgoings I have. My, like, fees here and this, like, website hosting, all of this stuff. Like, yeah. my own travel. Like, no one pays for anything for me. Stationery. I can't just go into a stationery cupboard and nick a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Postage. Printer. You know, exactly. All of this stuff <laughs> yeah. you have to pay for. And it really does make you think. I mean, A, it makes me think, okay, well, I need to actually raise my rates. Because what I think is a good amount, when all the deductions have come away, mm-hmm. is not a good amount. Um, but it really just, I think it's given me such a tighter handle on yeah. money. I think, but for a while being self-employed, I was quite scared of, even though I've always been really financially literate and I've always really leaned into my money situation. I've always, you know, saved. I was, I've, I was always pretty good with money when I was, um, in full-time employment, but actually I think when I became self-employed for a while, I, like I, there's a line in my book in Little Black Book where I say, you should check your bank balance at least once a week. Um, and if you're scared to check your bank balance once a week, check it once a day, you know, like, but when I was self-employed for a while, there was a point where I couldn't check my bank mm. balance because I felt so, because I didn't have the same safety of like every month it's being topped up. And I felt so much more anxious and nervous about money than I've ever felt. And I think I've only fairly recently kind of come about and I'm making more money and I understand what's going on now. And I have like a safety net and all of this stuff. And, and I have savings, but I still was, we've talked about this. Like I, I was mm. still so anxious for a while because the kind of up and down chop and change and I think my income is more consistent now but yeah it was you know for a while it was good money but patchy and I didn't know things would be coming in so and that's it I think there is an anxiety around that to be honest I had I had a cracking march um I don't know whether that was like international women's week and all that stuff like getting all of the projects in I think I had a cracking march literally and then now I'm thinking oh okay like that was really good but um you know, you can't times that by 12 and that, say I'm like a millionaire. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Like I was going over my accounts because it's like end of the tax year, April. And I was like, yeah, that's good. Like, OK, well, projection on cause for X for the rest of the year. And I was like, no, wait, like you had a good March. So yeah. like, don't get cocky. Like, do you are you having as good an April? Probably not. So it was it's really interesting. Um, but you, you've taught me a lot about kind of work, self-worth and getting what you deserve because I you know, I have had help now with my manager. She's like an agent, but manages my brand partnerships. And um, she she asks for figures I would never ask for. Yeah. And that's taught me a lot about, oh, wait, you think I'm worth this. Yeah. So let's do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't have an agent or anything like that. So I, I don't know what's where the figures I ask for lie on the spectrum. But I am very like, I don't negotiate. Actually, which I don't think that's a good thing. If someone asks me what my fee is, I will generally think about the fee that I would accept. And I'll be honest about it. Like, I don't really build in a buffer, which probably isn't the right way to negotiate. I'm sure there are people who are negotiation experts and 
but I will just be like, here's what I want. Mm. And they can either meet it or they can't. One tip just I want to share quickly yeah. is if you get offered to do something that you don't really want to do, yeah. just ask for loads. Oh, that's also what I do. And sometimes they come through and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'll do it now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I've definitely had a couple of things where I was like, I don't want to do this at all. Like, it's effort, this and that. And and then I just asked for a sum that I thought would make them go away. <laughs> they were like, yes. And I was like, well, yeah. okay, fair enough. Like, you really want this. I've done that a few times. Um, well, I think my last question for you before our rapid fire round, because there is going to be rapid Ooh. fire round, I know, get ready, um, is what advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue the same career and the same path as you? Because I think there are a lot of women who look up to you and what you do career-wise. So what can you tell them? Mm, it's a hard question because... I don't really want anyone to follow my path. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. I think my path is is a certain path that worked for me. And your personality. And, and my your personality. Interests. And also, I mean, I feel really privileged. I went to a really good school. Mm. They told me I could be anything. Like, my confidence was drilled into me at an early age. Same. And that's why at the moment I'm doing a lot of workshops around, you know, with the Prince's Trust and with some, like, teenagers who maybe don't feel confident because I can't I can't really hands on heart say like I'm responsible for everything do you know what I mean and that's, that's not me saying that's not me putting myself down that's just me saying look like my path is my path mm. so I think if someone else's path looks different to mine I still think though that you can re you know take some tips from the book and also find ways to actually make your path more successful that's, yeah. that's essentially what i want to do yeah um don't and, try and copy you just yeah. apply yours your learnings to your own definitely path. i mean i did a talk in a school clapton girls academy yeah. recently and i was like well i'm not going to go into this school of like 13 year old girls and go start a blog mm. and then maybe start a podcast like that is that is not advice because that's my path that's my timings that's my you know, thing. So actually it's looking at like a broader spectrum of um, here's how to use the internet in a way. Here's some tools that are working now. Here's some shortcuts into, I don't know, getting more eyeballs on it. Here's how to network properly. Mm. Here's how to make money. All of those skills I think are really important so that whatever path you want to create, more people will be open to it. Because I do think we've got a confidence crisis going on. Definitely. It's all very sure. well going, here's all the shiny tools in the toolbox, like go and do it. People are like, oh, but I'm scared. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because, you know, there's a segment of this podcast, Ask a Tay, the Korea Agony Art, and today's letter that I'm going to record after this is a confidence crisis. And really? I've, I picked it out of all the ones in my inbox because I was like, I think a lot of women mm. will relate to this one. So it's funny you say that. Um, I'd love to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Give you some tips. You can get a little preview. Um, rapid fire round, really quickly. Um, just say the first thing that comes into your head. If you weren't, I'm really curious about the answer to this one, actually. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would have been your plan B? I think my plan B would have been working in a bookshop. Yeah? Yeah. You love reading. I love reading and I love people and I, I love conversations. Actually, my next question is, what's the last book you read? <laughs> Motherhood by Sheila Hetty. Oh, I oh, saw that. Oh, my God. Really? Recommend. It's a little bit strange in places, but it's about, it's about you know, if you're not sure, because I'm not sure, um, it's just it's just a social commentary on the fact that as a woman, if you don't want to have kids, you better have a really good excuse. Why not? Mm. And, and about how you have to justify decisions and you better have a banging career if you don't have one. What if you don't? Ju what if you just don't want one? amazing book that's really interesting that's again that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently so I'm I'm literally going to a bookstore after this to go and pick that up um what's your worst working habit replying to emails late really? even though in the book I talk about boomerang which is a scheduling tool for gmail mm. I still end up firing things off like quite late into the night is, which is makes it, you look a bit manic I think yeah I agree I, I I'm some I tell people not to do it and then I do it yeah I bet you have things like this I've definitely <laughs> done that I, I think I texted you last well that wasn't the same I texted you so late last night but I've definitely done that and I, so I remember when I started Women Who I was like freelancing at an agency for a bit um and at an ad agency it was really cool but it was nine to seven um and so I was waking up at five every morning and like working on stuff and often that stuff would be emails but I'd draft the emails at home and then on my iPhone on the way into work like eight mm. eight thirty press send because I just kind of felt like 
it's a bit it's aggressive. Way better. Like I know, I know better than this. Yeah, and exactly. Blim and do it. Exactly. So that's the no, bad, but that's bad honest. Habit. That's yeah. honest. At least you know you're doing it. And I think in certain circumstances you will hold back, but sometimes you're just like, I'm just going to get this out now before I forget about it in the morning. Yeah. And then sometimes I think if that person judges me, then like it's their problem. Sometimes you just need to clear your mind, clear your inbox, because if until you've sent it, you're still thinking about it. Exactly. How would you describe yourself in three words? Oh my goodness, this I know, is hard. It's a tough one. Um, I would say creative, introverted, and adaptable. Yeah, I feel like that sums you up to a T. That's really That's hard though. No, it's hard, but you clearly have well, my next question is actually how would the people you work with describe you in three words? Oh my god, who knows? Yeah. A nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She's a real diva. Um I don't know. I, I, this is going to make me sound really um, strange, but I'm really into horoscopes. Really? I'm a Gemini. Like, I'm such a Gemini. What are the traits of a, so Gemini? a Gemini? So Gemini is the twins. Okay. So I have, I don't have like two sides to me, but well, that's what I, I, I do have a very like, I'm on stage, I'm doing my thing, I'm wearing yellow. Your Sasha Fierce <laughs> persona. Literally. And then I have, you know, me at home, you know, like we all are, you know, I'm very, very quiet and very very reflective and I read a lot and I'm I'm you know I don't feel like I can take over the world I think there's two sides of me from that respect and also they're um creative and opinionated and adaptable and they are like the social chameleons mm. so that's interesting yeah um and final question how would you like to be remembered I would like to be remembered as someone who started conversations about things who who created pieces of work that stand the test of time? Yeah, I like I love the idea of you know someone reading Control Alt Delete in like ten, twenty years, even well, no longer, longer than that, and being like, oh my god, they used what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I just feel like capturing the world we're living in right now could be quite interesting in the future, but you know that that is quite an arrogant thing to say. But then no, isn't that but isn't that why we're all doing it? Yeah, totally. Because people agree. that say, oh, I don't care who, I don't care if no one reads my stuff. Yeah, you do. You want people to read it. It's okay to want people to read your stuff. Do you know what? This might sound really morbid, but I was having this conversation with a friend last night and I was like, I want a really nice obituary. Like, I want an obituary that is not necessarily like a giant, you know, important one, but I want an obituary that is full of stuff as opposed to she lived, maybe she got married, maybe she had kids. You know, I want it to be like, she did this. This is her legacy. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't have to be, just so that everyone knows, doesn't have to be a big shiny obituary. But yeah, I was like, I want an obituary. Maybe that's a really morbid way of thinking no, about not at it. No, I actually interviewed the Slumflower recently. Oh, who's yeah. kind of on the rise. Amazing, amazing person. Please follow her on Twitter and Instagram. But the whole episode just was talking about death because I think there's like, on the flip side of the coin of being creative you kind of are always, you're sort of thinking about it a bit because yeah. the clock is ticking, let's make stuff. Yeah. You know? You want it to so it's have not, lasting it's importance. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a lovely, yeah. slightly morbid <laughs> note to end on. Thanks for having me. Thank you I so love this much show. for coming on. I'm so pleased to hear that. I loved having you on. Thank you. On today's segment of Ask Otega, I've got a letter from a listener who's really struggling with her confidence levels in terms of her career prospects. Here it is. Dear Otega, my career started out quite promisingly, but when I took a job at a respected marketing consultancy, it really stalled. They weren't interested in developing junior staff, and I was bullied by my team director. It was a real struggle, but I stuck it out for 18 months. I was optimistic I'd find something better and met with some amazing recruitment agencies which all looked promising, but they all went south for various reasons. I was often the right fit for the wrong role. I tried to diversify and have spent the last three or so years doing various bits and bobs. My mental health has been really affected. I'm now so nervous to apply for jobs and don't know how to talk about my work over recent years. I'm 29 now, but I really want to do something meaningful professionally as part of a team. How can I approach getting back into the workforce? I'm completing a master's now and I'm terrified about applying for jobs at the end of it. You're sincerely nervous about the future. Well, first of all, can I just say that I'm so sorry to hear about your experiences. Um, that must have been an incredibly tough period of time and 
I'm not surprised to hear that it's knocked your confidence and made you feel nervous about working life in general. There's really nothing worse than a bad workplace environment or a bad manager, especially one who's a bully. I've experienced both myself at various points in my career and I can attest to the fact that it really does knock your confidence and it can have a lasting effect that follows you around for years. But you can't let that one bad experience poison the rest of your career because, well, otherwise then they've won and you'll look back on that in years to come and have serious regrets about letting someone else who doesn't have your best interests at heart essentially make your career decisions for you like does that really sound like something you want to do um i understand why you're worried about your cv over the past three years before you started your master's potentially looking a bit patchy but i would say that often when it comes to applying for jobs and interviews as long as you can give a plausible reason as to why that is you can largely mitigate against that so in your case that reason might be that you just wanted to experiment a little bit on the careers front and that experimentation led you to realise you wanted to complete the master's you're now studying for. And also that as a result, you now know what it is you're truly passionate about, which is whatever job or industry you happen to be applying for. I think people have bounced back from far worse than just having a few disjointed looking years on their CV. So don't feel like you're tainted goods because you're absolutely not. I think if you can afford it, you might want to look into getting a few sessions with a life coach or a careers coach who might be able to help you reframe your thinking and give you much more specific advice than I'm able to based on the letter you sent in. Um, I happen to know quite a few friends who've used them. One who's just quit a job where there was a really toxic environment. The other one is just kind of trying to figure out his next Cambria move. And they've both had really positive experiences. Like I've literally spoken to them both in the past couple of weeks and they were just raving about it. Um, it sounds like you need a confidence boost and someone to talk about your fears and your you know, ambitions and your nerves with and also just to really kind of dive into your own specific situation in forensic detail. And, you know, maybe that could be friends or family as well. But I do think that someone who's experienced with working with people in situations like yours and has kind of seen it all before could be a real boost for you. Um, and it wouldn't even necessarily have to be on like an ongoing basis if finances are an issue, which I'm sure they are for many of us. Um, I think that even a few sessions could really help you clarify your position. So, you know, think about asking around amongst friends, you know, former colleagues to see if anyone can give you a good recommendation. People going to see life coaches, I think, is actually far more common than you think. So I would definitely consider that. Um, you also said in your letter that your mental health has been affected. And again, I'm so, so sorry to hear that. I think this just sounds so tough. Um, your working environment can play such a huge role in your mental health and I'm really not surprised from what you've said that in your case that's been to its detriment. I'm not a trained mental health professional or a mental health expert at all so I'm not going to give you any specific advice on that but I definitely think you should talk to someone who is. So go see your doctor and tell them how you're feeling and just make sure that you're getting the help and support that you need. Um, careers are obviously hugely, hugely important. That's what this whole podcast is about but your mental health should come first. And I imagine that addressing any issues on that front will actually put you in a much better position to start applying for jobs and making decisions about your future. So, you know, back to my original point, I think it's really important just to try not to let this follow you around, which I know is easier said than done, but you said yourself that your career started promisingly. So you obviously are talented and capable and ambitious. I think you just need to be reminded of that. You've had a career blip, sure, but that doesn't have to define you at all. You're 29. You're just about to complete a master's. The world is literally your oyster. Um, and hopefully the things I've said just now have helped remind you of that. So let me know how you get on and good luck. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Take a segment, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. You can find me at Otegi on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, as I ask for at the end of every episode, please, please, please leave me a nice, lovely, juicy five-star review whilst you're there. See you next month. Yeah, yeah.